Yes, I'm Sarah Clark. This is your EFCN News Top Story. America's economy continues to take a hit with falling stock prices, an increase in home foreclosures, and an uptick in unemployment numbers. Those stories in just a minute. But first, a personal side to the economic downturn. Despite the $700 billion bailout plan, Americans are still waiting for some good news. But as reporter Jared Wilson shows us, that's not the case for more than 8,000 DHL employees in Wilmington, Ohio. Jared, what did you find out? Well, Sarah, Wilmington residents knew DHL was going to cut jobs, but the confirmation has delivered a devastating blow to the community. DHL is the area's largest employer. Pretty bad. We've kind of been figuring something's going to happen. And um, as it stands, now we know it's going to shut down. About 3,000 residents of Wilmington and Clinton County work at the DHL hub, with the rest of the workers coming from five surrounding counties. Wilmington, which has a population of 12,000, will be dealt the biggest blow in terms of job loss. DHL's 9,500 job cuts are on top of the 5,400 cuts announced in May. After the layoffs, between three and 4,000 employees will remain at DHL's U.S. operations, the company has told workers. Sarah, the company also said it is shutting down all ground hubs and reducing the number of its U.S. stations to 103. That's down from 412. Thanks, Jared. Well, Ohio isn't the only community suffering. America's automakers are also looking to make cutbacks, especially General Motors, who's at risk of running out of operating cash still this year. A GM spokesperson says 1,900 more jobs will be cut. The employees affected will come from stamping, engine, and transmission facilities across the country. Those cuts are in addition to the 3,600 factory layoffs GM announced last month. Now, why the cuts? Well, poor sales numbers and the cash crisis. At one point, GM shares were at their lowest point in nearly 60 years. GM is teaming up with Ford and Chrysler union leaders trying to cut back labor costs while simultaneously seeking help from the federal government. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve has lowered its interest rates just about as low as they can go. That's prompting oil futures to tumble as well as energy and financial stocks to sharply drop. But Americans are not alone. The United Nations say the world economy faces its worst downturn since the Great Depression. Evidence indicates countries like China, Japan, and Britain are facing fears of a prolonged recession. Now, the widening global economic downturn has prompted a rash of corporate profit warnings and has some companies ready to warn about their ability to operate in this disturbing environment. So who's to blame? Well, you won't find anyone volunteering, but there are plenty of fingers being pointed to Washington. As Pastor Dale Hummel shows us in our special report, God's editorial on the economy, there is one reason for our current crisis, and the good news is there's a solution. Thank you, Sarah. And I want to welcome you to our sermon series for December, where we're going to be talking about God's editorial on the big stories of 2008. And I don't think there's a bigger story than the economy, right? It's affecting all of us in many different ways. And uh, in fact, it's such a big issue that it has really made a lot of people nervous and, and uptight. 
And we're going to take a look at it today. And to begin with, on the top of your sermon outline, there is a sentence that I want you to fill out. And it simply goes like this. It's a reminder to us that every follower of Jesus should understand our current economic circumstances or crisis in order to prepare for the coming new world order. Say, what's that? Coming new world order? Yes. I think what's going on in our country right now has ramifications for our future, and especially in terms of prophecy when you look at the Bible. You know, it's what I think is happening right now is part of what Jesus predicted would be those birth pains that would occur right before his coming. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a couple of minutes. But I want to get back to something that Sarah mentioned. That is, there are a lot of people who are pointing fingers right now trying to say who's to blame for why we're in the mess we're in today. So you have Republicans who are pointing fingers at Democrats. You have Democrats who are pointing fingers at Republicans. You have free market advocates who are pointing their fingers at uh, liberal-leaning socialists. And you have liberal-leaning socialists who are pointing their fingers back at the competitive, greedy capitalists. Who is to blame? Well, this morning, you and I are going to get an opportunity to lay the blame where it belongs. And uh, I hope you're looking forward to doing that. Are you? We get to point our finger at who's to blame. It's not going to do any good, but we're going to point our finger nonetheless, all right? So get your Bibles out and turn with me to the very beginning of the book of Genesis. And I want to begin at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. In the early beginnings of the book of Genesis, we see the uh, principles of economy, the general principles of economy. Let me show you. Verse 26 of Genesis 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase and number. Fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-brain plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So that passage has economy written all over it. Because in the very beginning, when God created the man and the woman, put them in the garden, his expectation is that they would multiply and populate the earth. And that they and their children and their children's children and the generations to come would live in dependence upon God and that God would then bless them with much in terms of provision, in much in terms of prosperity, in much in terms of of, uh, abundance. And it would be their responsibility to work with what God gave them. Yes, work with what God gave them in order to create with it, shape with it, make with it, barter with it, trade with it, sell with it, and to enjoy God's creation in that sense. And there would be no competition, there'd be no envy, there'd be no jealousy, there'd be no wrong that would take place. It truly would be a blessed and divine economy. But it never got off the ground. It never got off the ground because of Genesis chapter 3. And so get your pointer finger ready, all right? Because we're going to 
lay some blame here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, underline this, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Now there is the, there's the catch, there is the, the real temptation. You know, as we're saying is you won't have to depend on God anymore because you will be your own God and you will determine your own destiny. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So get your pointing finger out and take it and lay it right on verse 6, because you have just identified the cause of the current economic mess that we're in right now. You can lay it at the feet of Adam and Eve. Because in Genesis chapter 1, when we first read the account of creation, there was something conspicuously absent that would make God's economy work. What was absent? Selfishness was absent. But in Genesis chapter 3, when man says, I don't want to depend on God, I want to be my own God, a spiritual sin virus was born into man's heart called selfishness. And selfishness is what is ruining us as a nation and what is ruining our economy. So there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with business. There's nothing wrong with a free market. What's wrong is you and me. We are selfish individuals. So when we get our hands on those things like money, like business, like deals, like loans, and on and on the list goes, we tend to be abusive with them. We tend to be self-serving with them. We tend to take advantage of others in order to gain more for ourselves. And that is what has happened. But you know what? Adam and Eve had children, and I'm one of them. How about you? And because we are their children, we all share a common likeness, not just that we're human beings, but we all have a selfish spirit. How many of you are certain that the person sitting next to you is selfish? Let me see your hands. That was much easier than me saying how many of you are certain you're selfish, right? We are all selfish. So lift your finger from the verse 6 and now point it to yourself. In one sense, all of us, every one of us, can say that we are partially to blame for the mess that we are in today. And look at the effects that it has on humanity. Just page forward a couple chapters to chapter 6 and listen to the description of humanity. Verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And every inclination. Did you read that? Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. You know, I see that happening in our own culture today. As I look, I see that the inclination of hearts and men. Watch television if you can stand it very long. And you'll see that the inclinations of men is evil all the time, it seems like. And, you know, selfishness breeds such evil. Selfishness causes us to kill. Cain killed Abel. Selfishness causes rape. 
Selfishness causes jealousy, envy. It causes thievery. It causes all the plagues that we deal with in our culture and the issues that we struggle with in our own lives because it's all about me. And it's all about me using you for my benefit and for my sake. And it's what we are dealing with and grappling with. So it says in verse 7, so the Lord, it says verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. And it says his heart was deeply troubled. And God sent the flood, as it were, to wash the earth clean of selfishness. And only one man, his family survived. And what was his name? His name was Noah. And why did Noah survive? Because Noah was a righteous man. Noah had decided that he was going to look up to God and believe in God and trust God and live under God's principles. And God blessed him. And there's a wonderful, wonderful reminder there for you and for me and for our young people who are growing up to inherit the mess that we're leaving behind. And that is that they will look to God no matter what anybody else does. If they will look to God and live under God's principles, they will be blessed by God. They will be given direction by God and they'll be kept by him. Flood was over, and we get to Genesis chapter 11, and we discover that it didn't take long for man to resume his selfish ways. And you get to the story of Babel, which is an interesting story. Listen to it. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come. Let us build ourselves, that's plural, a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may, underline this, make a name for ourselves, a city with a tower that reaches the heavens that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to the city and the tower that they were building. The Lord said, If as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. In other words, it will be the flood all over again. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. You know, when I look at that scene on the plain of Shinar, and I think about the Tower of Babel, it is a reminder to me of the first organized attempt by humanity to push God out of the way and establish their own, their own kingdom. We might call it a humanistic kingdom. They were going to build a tower to lift them as high as possible to avoid any further flood damage that could ever occur. And they were going to build a name for themselves. And that name was humanity, humanism. And you know what? Ever since then, man is trying to been trying to organize himself against God. And if I understand prophecy properly, there's coming a day when the whole world, under one government, under one economy, under one ruler, will organize itself against God as though it's going to be able to stand against him. And I think the pieces on the chessboard are being moved in position for that day to become a reality. We'll talk more about that next weekend. But the economy is a vital, vital part of it. And so God comes down and God confuses the language and he scatters them and he, and he kind of judges them for this. But God doesn't give up. 
God still has hope for mankind. And we read later on in Genesis chapter 11 and 12 that God calls a man by the name of Abram, who he later renames Abraham. And he makes out of Abraham a nation called Israel. As though to say, I want to provide for the world a model of how I can bless a people if they'll organize under me, be submissive to me, and live by my principles. I'll bless them economically. And we read about that over in the book of Deuteronomy. Would you turn there with me? Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And I want you to listen to what he said. Very important to you and me today. Chapter 28 Verse 1, the writer says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Now come over to verse 9. The Lord will establish you as his holy people, as he promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to him, Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. They will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity. That's economy. In the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground. They were agrarians in those days. In the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. So depend on me. Honor my ways. I will bless you and I'll bless you economically. But look what he says in verse 15. However, if you do not obey the law of your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees, I am giving you today all these curses will come on you and overtake you. Now, I want you to skip ahead to verse 43. The foreigners who reside among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. They will lend to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be the head and you will be the tail. All these curses will come on you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees he gave you. They will be a sign and a wonder to you and your descendants forever because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. That is so important for you and I to remember. Therefore, in hunger and in thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Now, folks, all you have to do is look at Israel, especially in the Old Testament, and you will see that they had times of tremendous prosperity and blessing, but it was always because they were looking to God, being led by godly leaders, and submitting to God's ways. You will also find Israel in dire straits as you look at it in the Old Testament. And when they're in dire straits, economically, spiritually, physically, emotionally, it's because they have moved away from God and have decided not to follow God's ways, but to follow their own ways. They will build their own Tower of Babel. And then what God does is he gives them over to their their selfishness and he judges them by bringing in other nations or catastrophes, natural catastrophes to deal judgment to them, to move them back to himself. And you see that constant cycle. 
Now, someone might sit there and say, but pastor, I'm not sure you can use that passage because isn't that talking to Israel as God's chosen nation? And I totally agree with you. That was written to Israel as God's chosen nation. But I also agree with those theologians who say that the principles are broad enough that they apply to any people, any people who will submit to God and live by his principles. And our nation, America, is a historical example of that. For we were founded by men who feared God, and we were founded on biblical principles, and we have been blessed. But we are moving away. And my fear is that in moving away, we're beginning to reap the judgment that comes with that God is giving us over to what naturally happens when you move away from God. Don't forget the words of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17, where God said, You may say to yourself, my power and my strength, the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. So here's the question. What is the cause of our current economic chaos? Rather than me answering that, I'm going to let the character that Michael Douglas portrays in the movie Wall Street to tell you what the bottom line cause is of our economic chaos today. Watch this. The new law of evolution in corporate America seems to be survival of the unfittest. Well, in my book, you either do it right or you get eliminated. In the last seven deals that I've been involved with, there were 2.5 million stockholders who have made a pre-tax profit of $12 billion. Thank you. I am not a destroyer of companies. I am a liberator of them. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. All right. Well, let me ask you a question. Is greed going to save the USA? Absolutely not. It's not doing too well right now, is it? No, greed will destroy us. It won't save us. It'll destroy us, which then raises the second issue. What are the implications of our economic upheaval? Now, I want to ask you to stay with me for a few minutes because I'm going to take us through some history and I'm going to take us through some philosophy and I'm going to take us absolutely through a biblical perspective on what's going on. And I want to challenge our students who are here this morning to listen in because, listen, you guys, I'm talking about your future. I'm talking about the world that, unfortunately, you are inheriting. And though you may only be in junior high or high school, you will be a big player in what's going to happen in the days to come. So hang in there with me as I kind of go through some, some uh, deep waters here, all right? And I want you to pay attention. The implications for our nation are absolutely huge. 
Now, I want us to understand something. We did not get here overnight. It's not like we just woke up one day and we had this economic mess on our hands. This can be traced way, way, way back to, I think, two big decisions that have been made in our culture. And the first one is the adoption of Darwinism or evolution into the mindset of academia. See, evolution has as its basis this idea that God was not instrumental if there is a God, and many evolutionists don't believe there is a God, has no uh, part in the development of mankind. We are creatures, a little smarter than the other creatures, though I wonder at times, but we are creatures who have evolved to this point. And there really is no God, and there really is no moral ethic other than what we create. And that has gone through higher education and academia and has been taught now for quite a few years. And there are those in our culture who view themselves as well-studied, well-learned, the intellectual elite who, coming from that background, feel as though they are the ones to give us guidance and direction. Now, that led to the second thing that I think has been detrimental in our nation, and that is the legalization of abortion. And before I say one more thing, I want to say to anybody here this morning who's had an abortion that God forgives and God loves you, and you are no worse a sinner than me. And if you confess that to God, he has forgiven you, and he will heal you, and he loves you, and he cares for you. But I also have to continue on to say that when you, when you accept that God's not really involved in, in the world and you push him out of the way, you see, it allows you to make decisions like who should live and who should die. It allows you to not only abort over a million babies every year in our country alone, but it allows for holocausts as well. The taking of people groups who may be a drain on the economy, who may become scapegoats for our problems and our troubles. And what happens is it leaves you valueless. It leaves you with moral, without moral underpinnings. And what is good becomes wrong, and what is wrong becomes good, and it creates a void. And in that void, the question is then raised. If God is out of the picture, then who makes the rules? And what are the rules? And how are the rules going to be enforced? And the answer to that question always, always is government and politicians. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to lump all politicians in the same pot, so to speak. I thank God for our morally directed politicians, our godly politicians, and we ought to pray for them. But by and large, government as a system, as we see it evolving in our country today, is becoming more and more and more godless. And wants to, wants to decide your life for you. And wants to decide what is right and what is wrong and what is fair and what is not. Now, somebody could have said to me years ago, that'll never happen here. The reason it'll never happen here is because we're founded on freedom. We're founded on liberty. We're founded on the concept that, no, we want limited, small government. We will, we will pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That's kind of the mindset, you know, that cowboy pioneer mindset that our nation was founded on. But I'm here to tell you that that mindset is long gone today. And the mindset that has come to be in our nation, and you know what, I, I know I'm not going to be popular with some folks. 
I understand that this morning, but I have to say what I have to say. The mindset in our nation today is a mindset of entitlement. We have raised up generations, and we can't blame the kids. We have to look at ourselves as parents and grandparents. We have raised up generations who believe that they should get what they want just because they want it, and we've given it to them. You and I live in a culture today where our educators are coerced by parent groups and even by the government to allow children who don't deserve to pass to the next grade to go on to the next grade because of entitlement. You and I live in a culture today where our government coerces banks and other institutions to loan money where in the private sector we would never make those kind of risky loans to people who are unprepared to pay them back just so they, can get us in, so they can get themselves in trouble, so that you and I can bail them out with our money, so that we end up in a situation where people don't have to be committed to God, they don't have to be committed to society, they don't have to be committed to themselves. They can walk away from whatever's not working out, and it's your job to clean the mess up. That is what happens when you have the mindset of entitlement. And folks, that is what we are experiencing right now. That's where we're living right now. You and I live in a culture, think about this, where the government is convincing us that it's such a mess, we need to let it take over. And so the government basically says, give me your dollars, and I will take your dollars, and I'll give you back what you really want. And here's what's eerie about it. A guy by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville in the 1830s, came over from France, he was a politician and a philosopher, to study American democracy, to see what made us so great, to see if it would help Europe. And he wrote a couple-volume book uh, set called American Democracy or Democracy in America. And he said something that is prophetic. He said this 170 years ago. Listen to this quote. The American Republic will endure until the day Congress discovers that it can bribe the public with the public's money. Folks, that is a reality today. It used to be that in the government, people would leave their private businesses, go to the government, sacrifice their time and efforts to help the nation in order to then leave and go back and serve in the private sector. We now have politicians for whom their whole goal is to buy your vote by promising and entitle people what they want so that they can go and serve in Washington as a career. And that is not how it was first framed. It was not how it was intended to be. But it's where it's at. And because we're so used to an entitled mindset, we're willing to give people our votes in exchange for what they promise that we all know they can't deliver. The only way it's going to be delivered is you and I are going to have to give it in our taxes. Now stay with me for just a minute because here's how it works. Here's how the system works. The system works that we all kind of get together and the government looks at us and says, I promised all these things for all these people. I have to have a way to provide this. So let me go find who's making money here. Well, you got money. You got money. You've got money. I am wanting more of your money so I can redistribute it to the people who don't have enough. Some of them honestly are in need. They have been hurt by the system. They need to be helped. Many of them, though, have an entitled mindset. They don't want to work for it. Just give it to me. And so what you have is taken away and redistributed. Now, what does that do for you? It kills your incentive, doesn't it? Why work? Why why bother to achieve? Why bother to get ahead? 
And then you make everybody kind of grumpy, and then you have to have laws and force people to stay in line because you don't have moral ethics to do so. And it's called socialism. And we're on the doorstep of it. And I thought, man, we get so much trouble if I say that this weekend. So I decided to call some people who are in the know, people who are, are intelligent or in the business community and uh, who are pretty connected with what's going on in our world. And I said, do you think we're on the doorstep to socialism? And they all looked at me and said, absolutely. Absolutely. And socialism has proven over time in history to never work, to only make people depressed, to make the average person poorer, the poorer person even poorer, and allows a few elite to become even more rich and more wealthy. But listen to me carefully. Here's the big deal. Socialism is a religion. It is not a philosophy. Socialism cannot truly exist if God is in the picture. Socialism must push God out to the edge. It must attack Christianity because of socialism. The government says, we will be the God in your life. We will take care of you, but we must have and will legislate your allegiance to us. Listen to what Tocqueville said. Tocqueville said to us, democracy and socialism have nothing in common but one word, equality. But notice the difference. While democracy seeks equality in liberty, socialism seeks equality in restraint and servitude. Second quote by the same man 173 years ago. Despotism, that is a cruel government, may govern without faith. You can govern without God and you can govern without faith. But liberty cannot. How is it possible that society should escape destruction if the moral tie is not strengthened in proportion as the political tie is relaxed? In other words, how does a a culture survive if you have small government and greater liberty? And what can be done with a people who are their own masters if they are not submissive to the deity? Hear what he's saying? He's saying for people to live in liberty... For people to be blessed in liberty, they must be submissive to God. There must be a morality behind what they say, what they think, and do. Otherwise, you have anarchy, and when you have anarchy, government has to step in. Well, we as a culture have pushed God out of the way, haven't we? So what's left to control and guide us? The answer is government, socialism. And that's where we're at today. And it's a frightening thing when you think about it. So that begs a question. And the question is, what is the cure? What is the cure for our current economic crisis? And I want you to look at one more quote by, I'm calling him a prophet, de Tocqueville. He said, I came to America and I sought for the greatness and genius of America and her commodious harbors and her ample rivers. And it was not there. In the fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be what? will cease to be great. You know what the hope of this nation is? Do you know what will turn this economy around? It is the local church that's on fire with Jesus Christ. That 
is what will change this world. I'm telling you right now, that is what will do it. But you know what? The first thing we're going to have to do is repent. Because so many of us have gotten caught up in this materialism that we're panicking by what we see going on financially. We're looking at our 401s and our 403s and our stock portfolios and we're reacting. We're panicking about it. We're upset about it. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned about it, but is that what you're trusting ultimately? Is that where your faith is in your retirement account, in your stocks? Is that, is your faith in the government and the government is going to save you? We all need to back up and say, God, we have sinned. We have sinned against you. We put our faith and trust in the wrong things. Forgive us. I know what will turn around this nation and our economy. It is the commitment of Jesus Christ's followers, you and I, back to the word of God as the principle that governs our life in our private life and in our public life. I know what will change this nation, what will turn this economy around. It's our deep commitment to worshiping God on a regular basis and stop treating God as though he's lucky when we show up on a weekend. But be committed to him because we know that he is the God of the universe and give him vibrant worship and praise. I know what will turn this nation around and change this economy. It's our commitment to serve one another in the love of Christ. It's our commitment to show compassion to one another like we're trying to do as a church now with our new compassion ministry. It's our desire and, and attitude that we will give generously to provide for the vision of seeing hearts and lives transformed here, near, and far around the world and meeting each other's needs and doing for what doing for one another what we were intended to do from the first place, and that is care for each other and not give the government the responsibility to do that. And I know what will change this nation and change this economy. It's my prayers and your prayers for our new president-elect and for our leaders. I am so disgusted by the hatred that I see coming from Christians toward the president-elect of our nation right now. Shame on us for the jokes we tell, for the wisecracks we make, for the disrespect we show. For in that we are no better than anybody else. And that man and his family and our government needs our prayers right now. Because God can change the heart of a king. God can change the heart of a queen. God can change the heart of a president or a prime minister, can't he? And we ought to be in prayer, in much prayer for them. Because so much of what they are going to do is going to determine our future. But you know what? When it's all said and done, I know that the hope of this nation and I know that the hope of this economy is found in a little child who was born in a manger and we're about to celebrate his birth date. We call it Christmas. And it's in that child who grew up and taught us the ways of God and modeled it for us. It's in that child who became a man and was stretched out on a cross and died for our sins. And it's in that man who three days later rose from the grave and said, I give you my spirit who will be with you. I'm going home to my father, but someday I'm coming back for you. And this Christmas when there's so much negativity and this Christmas when there's so much pessimism, I'm telling you we ought to be men and women and young people of hope. Because our Savior lives, and we know who holds the future. And it's not the government, it's not the bank, it's not my retirement account. His name is Jesus. Amen? 
And that's where our faith needs to be. You and I ought to walk out of this place encouraged today. Encouraged today. We ought to walk out of this place ready to tell people there's hope on the way. And his name is Jesus. And we ought to adjust our lives underneath to him. And become submissive to him. And watch how he'll bless. You and I could spark the revival that could change this world. If you and I, on our own, in our families and in our church, would say, as for me and my house from now on, we will worship and serve the living God. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand. Let's be encouraged today. And let's truly show forth the grace and love of God. And you don't want to miss next weekend when we talk about the election. Father, as we go from this place today, I just pray and ask that you lift our spirits. We've looked at our bank accounts. We've looked at our retirement plans. We've looked at our portfolio. And it's not real pretty right now, God. But I want to thank you because it's a wonderful reminder that our trust needs to be in you. And not in mammon. Not in things. And so we're readjusting our trust in you this morning. Because we know, oh God, who holds the future and it's you. And if we're your child, you hold us. And so Lord, as we walk out of this place, we want to be committed to you. In worship, in service, in giving, and in compassion. We pray and ask, Lord, I pray and ask that you will bless this congregation, these men and these women, in such ways, Lord, that the world around them will look and say, Why do you have such a good attitude? How is it your needs are being provided? And we'll be able to point to Jesus and be able to point to his church. God, these are the best of times for they bring us back to who really matters. And his name is Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. If you're a guest, I'll see you at the guest center. God bless you.